agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugged the government love, the government hugged the government love, the government hugged the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the Midwestern defender of freedom himself, Jay Carson. Welcome to the show, Jay. Good morning, Trey. Good to be here. Yeah, I mean, I think today we could really call this show Republican and Rhino, or I don't... <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, uh, Mike Mike is taking a uh, uh, much well-earned uh, vacation day here. Uh, so yeah, while Mike's away, uh, who knows what kind of trouble we can get into, but <laughs> well, we, we teased on, uh, we teased on Slack. One of the, the levels of support for, uh, or one of the uh, things for supporters is, is that we were going to like take inflation seriously and all kind of crazy, you know, all kind of Republican crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I think what we might actually uh, uh, start off on the show, we're going to kind of run through what we're going to be uh, hitting up. So we're going to start by talking about the Supreme Court's, uh, well, sort of ruling on uh, the Texas abortion ban. Um, we're going to talk about Biden's uh, comments on Taiwan, China's response. Um, we're going to talk about Manchin threatening zero spending and being comfortable with that. Uh, we're also going to move on and talk about uh, the House voting for criminal contempt charges against Steve Bannon. Then we're going to move to Biden's commission on the Supreme Court and potentially a rough day uh, for those on the left. Uh, and then finally, we're going to turn to a couple of uh, items, including if we have time, uh, whether or not qualified immunity might be expanded in a, in, a, in a recent Supreme Court case. We're going to talk about the future of the filibuster. And then uh, we're going to maybe probably later in the bonus show, we're going to take a look and talk about what's the face of the Republican Party in 2022 and 2024. Uh, anything that we don't get here on the main show, of course, we will be getting to uh, in our bonus show, which is just one of the many uh, advantages you have for being a supporter of the show. Uh, so, Jay, before we jump into our first story, which is going to be uh, the ongoing Supreme Court case on the Texas abortion ban, let's take a brief break for our sponsors. Okay, Jay. Well, this Friday, the United States Supreme Court issued an opinion allowing Texas six-week abortion ban to remain in effect while it works its way through the courts. Now, Justice Sotomayor did, in fact, have a pretty harsh partial dissent, arguing that the court, by not allowing the temporary stay to remain in effect, is allowing a patently unconstitutional law to remain in effect because of a dubious enforcement mechanism. Uh, Jay, what do you think? I know, you know, this is one of the things that I have tried to follow a little bit more closely. I saw a lot of legal scholars think that the court was going to uphold the stay and then it strikes that down. It's going to it, it does get an expedited process. Do you think what do you think the effect of this is going to be? And, and what's your take? I mean, I, I, you know, that's that's your area. What do you think is was the court right to uh, to remove the stay? Um, yes and yes. Um, I, you know, it, it, when Mike and I talked about this um, a, a week or so ago and probably the weeks before that, uh, you know, the big thing that I, I think people ought to look at is we're talking about a procedural issue here. Um, and, and the court was pretty specific uh, in that, in, in the question that it granted uh, this this immediate certiorari for which is which is again it's it's an unusual uh, procedure that it's doing this. 
It's um, an expedited. And, and what expedited, it means yeah. is that, in other words, you don't have to go through all of the normal processes. They're going to let you. A, a, a writ of certiorari is the ability to be heard by the Supreme Court. They're going to accept your petition, your plea. Right. And usually that that process plays out over months or years. Um Right. I mean, the way it works is you go and you get a decision from a, a district court and then you go to the Court of Appeals and that process is about a year or so when you're getting a decision on the merits. Uh, and then, it, you know, they they go to the Supreme Court and you've got uh, quite a while in terms of um, uh, filing uh, briefs, asking the court to accept it. And then the court can sit on that for, in some cases, years um, uh, and or, or put them, move them on the list, off the list. Uh, and, and in this case, it's it's because we're talking about you know qu- questions of immediate relief. It's moving faster, but this is moving even even faster for that because it's still looking at that that fundamental uh, issue of uh, not is this constitutional or not constitutional. And I think Mike and right, I because the the actual clearly, yeah it is. the actual it item is. here is whether or not uh, the federal government can be a party to a suit in the case of this state enforcement mechanism. Right. Does yeah? Do we have the right plaintiff and do we have the right defendants? Um, and I think that's a that's an important question. Um, and I, you know, some could say, well, they're dodging the issue. Uh, but uh, but look, this is this is the way courts operate, and there's a, there's a reason for it. I mean, otherwise, what you have is just sort of a you know nine member super legislature. Uh, that that just you know well hey once a once a you know bill is passed we'll just weigh in and give our opinion and that's that's plainly you know that's that's not what the court was set up to do to give advisory opinions there has to be an actual conflict between actual parties and it has to be an actual situation where the court can grant relief to one of those parties and I I think there's a a real question here as to whether they've got the right right parties now in this one there there are. Uh, abortion providers who are also plaintiffs along with the, the federal government. Um, and my sense is they would have a standing as, as we discussed, but there's that question of, you know, typically for someone to have standing to challenge a, a law pre-enforcement, uh, it's, it's got to be a criminal penalty. Um, right. But of course, in this particular instance, no one... you're never going to have the criminal penalty. That's what makes the enforcement yeah. mechanism so unique. Yeah. Well, what what you would need is is at some point um, someone to actually sue one of these providers for the, the ten thousand uh, dollars, and and then, and then I I would think have a court prepared to to act on that, right? I think that might be, you know, you're, you have standing then, or you know, once you are assessed the ten thousand dollar fine, then you, um, uh, well, I, guess, I don't know. It's a good question. Is it a fine? I suppose it is. That's well. I mean, that's it's an interesting not actually legal, a legal mean, thing. Yeah, the, legally in terms of the an SB. Uh, uh, not the, the 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 bill itself. It's not a fine. That would have then been a more straightforward but a criminal type it, action. It, yeah, it's a civil action. Yeah. Although, although again, I think I think you can get into a a um, debate over you know, a, a rose by any other name, um, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, if if you're saying, look, there is there is a civil action that allows a um, non-affected party to uh, seek damages um, to enforce something, you know, you're essentially creating private AGs, right? Which, which there are other statutes out there that do that, you know, different kinds of consumer statutes, fraud statutes, that sort of thing, where you allow a, a consumer to essentially bring the bring a case like the uh, attorney general would. Um, so it's it's sort of like that. So I think there would be a, a, a an interesting debate of whether this is a fine or whether it's civil damages. Um, 
but regardless, in, in in either case, none of that is you know neither one has been imposed at this point, uh, and I think that's you know that's sort of uh, that's that's an issue. So in my right ear, I'm I'm hearing you talking, but in my left ear, I can hear the disembodied voice of Ken saying, "Look, you know, uh, standing is just a court created." Uh, um, rule of access it's just a barrier the court gets to have it or not have it and this is telling us something about the court that they're not going to allow this to move forward and they're going to remove the stay what do you respond to that kind of response to say well look they're just hiding behind standing in this particular case because they want to allow this to remain in effect i i I mean, I don't want to take a shot at Ken because he's not here, but I, I don't think that yeah, from your here, Ken's argument. Um, um, I, well, I don't I'd think say that's, like five that's weeks ago we had talked about how the rules of access for the court standing being one of those are really just kind of more or less manipulable things and good and, and good prud- lawyers are going to make prudential the best rules is yeah. probably maybe the best way to put it. Right. Say that one more time. Um, I was over talking you. I'm sorry, Jeff. Uh, yeah, prudential rules, meaning yes. that you know the court will sort of decide in its own wisdom uh, who has standing and who doesn't. And I would say, well, look, while that determination can vary, the principle remains the same. Um, and and I I don't think, look, if 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 the idea was that the court was just trying to uh, dodge this and allow uh, an unconstitutional law to stay in effect because they're saying the parties don't have the right standing, um, then I, I don't think you would see the court taking on the Mississippi case, right? Which mm-hmm. which which does have the, you know, it is going to be a, a decision on the merits uh, on on uh, Roe v. Wade um, uh, and or, you know, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, that, that they're actually going to take that that case up. Um, so I, I don't I don't see this as a, a dodge or an evasion, but I, I do think it's important um, from a, um, uh, again, sort of judicial uh, restraint type type position that courts, uh, you know, look look at whether the parties have, have standing and they don't just sort of uh, jump into issues and start granting relief that are really, you know, political type um, policy questions. Right. Uh, unless it's teed up as here's someone who's got a constitutional right and it's they're being deprived of it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's 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 the problem. Right. Um, so I, I think and, and if you if you think about this again over the long term, um, there's a conservative majority on the court right now. That's not always going to be the case. Uh, it hasn't always been the case. Uh, in fact, usually wasn't the case. So I, I think we, we ought to be cautious, courts ought to be cautious uh, about just wading into to issues until and, and less than until they've, they know that they're, they're on, on all fours there. And for a couple of reasons, one, that, that does speak to the court's legitimacy, right? Right now, there's, there are issues where um, uh, there are people out there who view the court's um, motives, decisions as uh, all political, mm-hmm. uh, and and to to say to say politics plays no part, or I, I think political is probably the wrong word. I think it's ideological, maybe that that is what people mean. Uh, to say that that plays no part, I think would would be sort of naive. Uh, but at the same time, they're not a super legislature, 
And I think that's, you know, the court needs to, for its its own sake, uh, keep those keep those boundaries in in place. Uh, and and the more it shows that, listen, we are uh, not acting as a super legislature. We're acting as a court, as that has t- traditionally been defined through, you know, common law going back a thousand years. Um, I think that's 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 to their credit. I've always wondered, you know, we we have this term of the court ought not to be, and I, I like the way you're putting it there, the the super legislature. But in the American uh, uh, jurisprudence tradition, which which really in many ways begins uh, with Marshall and, and Marbury, I mean, in in many ways, isn't the court set up to effectively be the super legislature on rights as it's come to us through? American precedent. Well, yeah, I would say even even before that, right? In the, um, there, I mean, there was a, you know, judicial review was was essentially imported to to some extent. Uh, it's it's a, but not in the version that we have. I mean, like so in the United Kingdom, for example, because you don't have a written constitution, which is which is you know for listeners, you know, in Marbury versus Madison. Um, Marshall's big argument for why the court has this power that's not outlined in the Constitution, right? So there's nothing in Article 3 in the Constitution that gives the court really any kind of uh, of judicial power. And and Marshall, he points to the fact that we have something unique from our predecessors, right? That, you know, that earlier precedent you're talking about, Jay. Right. He says, look, we have a written Constitution. And because we have a written Constitution, therefore, the court has this ability to interpret what it means. And that's inherently uh, a, a judicial power. And, and that's, the, you know, the, the um, taking of that. So, I mean, it's true that, you know, earlier courts had versions of that. But even today, uh, you know, um, UK courts can't strike down laws the way I mean that the that the Supreme Court of the right, United right. States no, it's can. a different it's a different um uh, yeah and and to, to say that that they have a judicial review in the same way that that we do is would be imprecise um but that that principle that that Mar, Mar, that um, uh, Marshall articulates in Marbury versus Madison that is exclusively the province of the judiciary to say what the law is mm-hmm. uh was was something that is had had been established. And I would also point out in um, uh, Federals thirty seven, I think it's Federals thirty seven. I I will check and make sure I've got my number right. Um, uh, Hamilton makes makes essentially the argument for judicial review there, saying that look, if if one of these these other uh, parties oversteps their uh, their bounds, the court can say something. But at the same time, he also says, but don't worry, they're not going to be a super legislature because they're a, they're a court and they're necessarily bound by those 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 rules of, of engagement, if you will, um, that, you know, we, we need it, it is it. I think in Hamilton's words, it was, uh, you know, the court provides judgment, but, uh, you know, nothing, nothing more and envisioned it as sort of the, the weaker of the of the three branches. Um, so uh, now, I, now I'm off track. I'm, I'm wandering. <laughs> well, we're I'm, talking I'm wandering about you know, the court, and we're, and we're thinking about it in terms uh, of uh, Texas and, and you know taking up the law. And yeah, I think part of what you were getting at there was that uh, this the the court has to balance its role of having judicial review with its legitimacy, which means that it can't yeah. allow itself to get tied up in. No, too overtly of ideological matters. Am, am I it, summing well, that up? It's one of those powers that, if you use it uh, too often, 
um, that that's when legitimacy starts to starts to erode, right? It's sort of like you've only got um, so many opportunities. And I mean, again, this is this is this is kind of weird theoretical, and there's no case I, I can point to on this, but. If people have the sense that, listen, the Supreme Court is there as a backstop and it weighs in on these uh, serious issues when it needs to, uh, when there uh, are specific rights to be determined, to determined uh, between parties, um, and it doesn't just wade in because, hey, there's something Congress did that we don't like, um, there's, there is that, that more respect, more legitimacy. Uh, however, the more often the court you know, becomes involved. Um, again, there's there's sort of the the more you do, the the more you risk that you lose that that um, sense of impartiality, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that I think that makes sense on a on a common sense kind of level. Well, you know, I, mean, I think we're kind of getting into this broader question of the court, its legitimacy, and what it should do. And, and if and if you'd be uh, uh, willing, Jay, what I'd like to do is maybe pause for uh, a sponsor break for just a minute and then come back and maybe we should talk about uh, the early draft of the Biden commission's Supreme Court reforms, because I think we're kind of starting to, <laughs> you know, yeah. wade into those waters if that's amenable to you. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's pause for a brief break from our sponsors. And then when we come back, Jay and I are going to take up uh, the Biden Commission's draft report. Okay, so Jay, you know, in our last segment, we were focusing on the Supreme Court's decision in terms of uh, Texas and the abortion bill. But, you know, we, we as we were talking about that, we were, we were getting into thinking about uh, the Supreme Court, its legitimacy. And I, and I think a lot of this is tied up. And, and this week, we had some of that, as a matter of fact, uh, come to a kind of a head. This past week, Biden's Supreme Court Commission issued some draft findings. And, and I don't think it lived up to the expectations of many on the left. It, it had a historical over. I, I don't know how much of it, uh, but you got a chance to read. It, it's a really great historical overview. I mean, it, it, it kind of oozes academicness. Yeah. Um, but what it, which did, was, which is the point. Yes, sort of, exactly. Right? I mean, from the, from the political standpoint, that's, that's the point. Yeah. That was indeed the point, but I, from the, from the ideological standpoint where it began to maybe uh, disappoint some was that it did not, in fact, uh, kind of come out in favor of changing the size of the court. Uh, so although it sees the, the the size change or these other kinds of uh, changes to the Supreme Court as potentially being legal, of course, they have all kinds of potential secondary negative effects. The draft itself states that the pursuit of court expansion, for example, is nothing more or less than a partisan context. Uh, and th- And further, quote, there are other reasons to believe expansion of efforts might have negative effects on the Supreme Court's long-term legitimacy or otherwise undermine its role in our legal system, end quote. Uh, specifically, the Supreme Court would, could keep growing so that every time each side won and had unified government, uh, it, it, it would expand. And, and, I, and, right. and the reason I'll I wanted to... get there to, eventually. Yeah. yeah, it would just you know, maybe <laughs> have 28 people as one of the examples yeah. from the... Sooner or uh, later, they got to they pick my name. So what I'm wondering is, is uh, one, I mean, we're, and I think we were getting at this, right? The fact that we're having this kind of conversation that Biden puts this out, I think in part is because there are many who either see, and I think it's conflicting. And so you can maybe agree or disagree with me on this. I think there's one camp that sees that the court has become 
too expansive in its power. And I think we were kind of hinting at that uh, and, and getting into that in the last segment. But then I think there's another group, primarily from the left, who think who, who's okay with the expansiveness of the court, but they're not okay with the ideological makeup of the court. So they want the court to be controlled by, you know, a, a different ideological makeup. Right. They're, they're okay with expansiveness as, as long as it's their their guys Ex- running yes, it. Yes, exactly. In that case, all, so, let's, let's be as expansive as we can. So you have those kind of two teams in an uneasy alliance. Um, and I don't think for either of them they were expecting, although maybe they should, I think they should have. Uh, I, I don't think they were expecting that they would get such kind of a tame, <laughs> you know, this tame commission report. You know, as a matter of fact, that uh, stalwart of the left of the nation uh, sees the commission as just a way for Biden to duck changing the court in a meaningful way. So, so Jay, what do you think about all of this? Uh, Again, it's a weird day when I'm agreeing with the nation, but um, the nation, the magazine, not the nation, the, the people. <laughs> yeah, but, um, an important uh, distinction. No, the, there. Um, they're absolutely right. And this is something, you know, when the court was, when this um, commission was proposed, Mike and I it, it talked about this and uh, we drew the exact same conclusion. And, and the the conclusion that, that what the report we got is more or less exactly the report that I expected. Uh, and, and, you know, what was going on was Biden was running for president. He's getting these tough questions because he's getting calls from the left saying, we want you to uh, pack the court. Uh, he is trying to run as a moderate. And he knows that if he goes on the record saying, you know, oh, yes, I'm going to pack the Supreme Court, that's going to hurt him in a lot of places, uh, especially among moderate Democrats. And it's going to very much drive conservative um, uh, conservatives to the polls. Uh, who would, I think, quite rightfully see it as, as a power grab. Uh, it, it, he also, um, Biden, I mean, I think one thing you can say is got that sort of institutional historical knowledge, um, partially by experience. And and look, the, the biggest shellacking that um, FDR took was over this, this mm-hmm. precise issue. Uh, now you can say, well, look, that was, uh, you know, 70, 80 years ago. Uh, but but the point is, those things are still sort of strong, and there's still sort of a conservative sense, and I mean this in a small c uh, way, of, of people are reluctant to have big structural changes in their government. Um, and and again, rightfully so. I think that's a that's a good instinct. Uh, and when you're talking about, well, let's let's add four more members, well, just because I don't like some of the members who are on there now. Um, that's I, I I think that's a perfectly reasonable position. So Biden was stuck in a what do I do to to uh, appease my voters on the left and uh, not scare uh, center center moderates uh, away or drive conservatives to the polls. So he he did this. You know, well I'll think about it. I'll I'll get some really smart people to think about it and uh, issue a report. And it's going to give him political cover. And that's exactly sort of what happened. So. Um, so let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question about that because you, you you came up to it and, and I think you put it eloquently there when you were talking about that small C conservative nature of the of the court. I, one of the reasons I think this has the the political legs, the reason it's made it as far, like why even have a commission, seems to me that we, we're kind of in this state uh, in Congress where that that lowercase C conservatism 
has on, on both sides is really just kind of gone. Uh, yeah. So one of the things in the document itself, it, it outlines like, well, what's the, even the reasons for the calls for this? And on this, I deeply, dis I d deeply agree um, with the draft finding, which, which is right. So Republicans, you know, create this rule for, we can't, you know, we can't, uh, you know, put your, put Obama's pick through. And then we flip flop on that, you know, unstated rules so that we can put Trump's uh, person through at the last minute. And, and again, there's nothing technically wrong with that. Right. I mean, Senate can do what the Senate wants to do. I mean, you, you have the yeah. majority, you can do it. Uh, but of course, by by doing it in that way, you you break your own precedent and you break that own kind of lower C conservatism. And and I think for those on the left, their response is to say, well, look, fine, you do that, but that means then when we can have majorities, constitution and this gives us the power to do things like expand the court. So you know, what's your argument now? So I so when I, I hear that, like, well, you know, we need to have that lower C. I think for many, they're going to see that as being a little bit kind of, well, we're, it's all well and good to be conservative when it's us having to, you know, suffer the, cons, you know, the, the slow yeah. consequences. What, what do you say to that? I, well, I think, um, I think one, I think you're right. I mean, we're, we're sort of in the position we're in a little bit now because, um, well, for a couple, couple reasons and, and bigger, bigger picture uh, is something that, you know, comes up on the show a whole lot is just the um, reluctance of, of Congress to really legislate that much anymore, right? It's just everything is sort of punted um, to agencies or made so ambiguous. And it's just the idea of, look, we're going to pass something and we'll let the courts figure it out later, um, thereby putting putting the court in, in that, that position of super legislature, whether the court asks for it or not. Mm -hmm. um, and that that applies to the federal government and and state governments. You know, that's that's sort of exactly what Texas did here, right? Um, Use this what, unique, weird mechanism, yeah. and then make somebody else tell them that they can't. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's come up with the goofiest sort of sort of thing we we can do now. And I would distinguish that between. I think there are statutes where you can um, do a hey, where the law is unclear or the the lines are unclear. Uh, let's pass a statute. And and get some clarity, right? Let's see how far we can go. Uh, I think that's that's a little different than um, than what Texas did here, uh, but but that's that's part of it, right? I mean, legislators uh, are sort of punting to the court um, more often than not. And, and look, maybe it's not their fault because there's groups out there who are going to bring these suits anyway, um, uh, or, or or parties who are going to bring these suits anyway. Uh, so there's there's that the other the distinction I would make between the small c change to um, you know the court composition versus the process uh, is that the the process is I think easier to fix or could could be fixed. Um, and, and what I'm talking about well, so yeah, is, say, give us an example, explain yeah. that a little bit more. So, so for example, I mean, I guess in, and I'm, I'm not pointing fingers here, um, Harry Reid, but, um, <laughs> you know, this goes back to sort of the, you know, the so-called nuclear option of, of, you know, as, as court appointments became sort of more high stakes because more decisions were being made, more law was being made in the courts. You had this tendency of, we got to make sure we have the right, uh, right people there. Um, and, and, uh, uh 
Perry Reed brought in the, you know, the so-called nuclear option and, and um, it got rid of the, the filibuster for uh, for uh, nominations that weren't yeah, the Supreme Court. And, 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 you know, that that sort of left it that took out the. Um, the old way of, of saying, look, we need to have pretty strong bipartisan um, buy-in on any nominee. But of course, uh, though, and, and I mean, it's up. Senate so, look, Republicans I, in 2017 was... who remove it for the Supreme Court, right? Uh, Harry yeah. Reid removes it for other appointments that were being consistently blocked and not allowed yeah. to move forward. Yeah. And and that's that's exactly right. I mean, so this is all playing out. Uh, in the the legislative process, and I, but I think there's there's a difference there between, um, you know, if you're if you're changing, um, these sort of sort of rules, and, and again, my my preference, the small c conservative position, would have been not to have have changed these to start. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's easier to undo, and and the other piece of it is, no one particularly worries, I guess, about. Um, Congress's uh, or the the Senate's legitimacy, uh, if you know what I mean. I mean it's it's accepted as this is a political institution, and they're going to do political things and make political choices. Uh, whereas a court is ideally above uh, partisan politics, uh, and and that's that's what where there's a a, a distinction. I think um, you know well, what me, I mean. Yeah, you know, I've never asked you this question part, point blank. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I thought you were pausing there. Finish that thought, yeah. Jay. Um, no, I was just sort of uh, stumbling. Um, <laughs> like like every, I mean, everyone um, would would seem to accept a a partisan Congress, uh, a, a partisan Senate, because look, you've got a remedy, right? Just vote the bums out. Um, it's it's quite different to say there's a partisan court. That serves for for a lifetime. So let me ask about that because you know on the academic side and the legal legal scholarship, uh, the answer is is that the court is in fact primarily ideologically driven. Uh, that you can explain most of the variation in court opinions most of the time uh, by the the predilections of the Supreme Court members, and that everything the court therefore is doing is kind of more or less a, um, maybe facade is a strong word, uh, but it is the trappings of things to try to make it seem less that way, right? So for example, uh, you know, court the court still gets up high on, on a bench and wears their medieval garb, right? You know, what other institution continues to wear their medieval garb besides uh, the court, right? You know, even academics, those of us who are, you know, kind of very much attached to this, you know, we only put it on when, when forced to by administrators right. at uh, <laughs> graduation, right? Uh, and, and the point here being not just, you know, that it's this kind of symbolic idea that we're going to mask what's actually kind of happening. And so, you know, that there's there's some data to to uh to say that. So, I think some would say, well, isn't the court in really isn't it truly kind of ideological and the rest of this is just the court's attempt to avoid that appearance even though that is in fact what happens? Well, I I would I I I don't think you're wrong there, right? Um but ideology is something that's different than than politics. Uh, they're they're related, they're close, but mm-hmm. but it's it's one thing to say the court has an ideological bent, uh, or justices of the court have an ideological bent uh, as to how um, the constitution or statutes ought to be interpreted. 
Uh, it's something else to say that the court or members of the court have a political bent on this is a particular policy I want to see enacted. And and I think you can you can look at look to um, uh, people like Justice Scalia. You can say, listen, he he certainly had uh, his his uh, uh, his preferred outcomes. Um, but he also, I mean, one of his famous statements, it was, you know, he said he wished he had a, um, a stamp that said stupid, but constitutional, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, and that's, that's sort of the, you know, the, the, the sense. And so, I mean, determining something, whether something is constitutional, uh, you know, is, 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 is this within the power of the executive branch to do X, Y, or Z? Uh, is necessarily a separate question than is X, Y, or Z a good policy. Um, the problem is that that issue can get muddled, you know, especially in the, the popular press and the, the you know popular media. So I, I I would agree with you that that um, uh, you know things are are it's ideological, uh, and I think you could say certainly there were decisions in the past that have been sort of boarded into political. Um, like small p political, if that if that makes sense. I mean, not, you not necessarily. That a I think I know what you mean, Jay, yeah. but I'm not well, positive. Well, I mean, uh, maybe, so. maybe political in terms of the court uh, defending itself or asserting itself against the other two branches, as opposed to political in a partisan um, manner. So, for example, Marbury so a balance of a balance of power. Yeah political, not yeah. an outcome political. Yeah. So for example, Marbury versus Madison, that's, you know, sort of your big example of the court is, I mean, on, they're acting politically on, on one, you know, in, in one sense. And, and look, there was a, a political undertone um, underneath that, right? Between the Federalists and um, uh, the uh, Democratic Republicans uh, on, on who gets you know how how this is going to turn out, and well, and as a matter of fact, if you think about it, I hadn't thought about this particular, but you know, in part, that that is an era where the court is not the same. In this case, political uh, outcome is the rest of government, right? So, you know, uh, you have Democratic Republicans, i.e., the Jeffersonians, take control of office, uh, and, and so the only place that Federalists are left, of course, is in the courts because that's who Adams. Uh, and, and his Senate was able to appoint, you know, even in, in Marbury, right? So yeah. uh, Marshall is writing the opinion, but of course, he's the principal reason why there's a case in the first place, right? He's ruling on right. his own yeah. issue. Uh, so, we, you know, so, again, so, yeah, it's it's one of those things that's impossible to say, let's take, Paul, let's, let's assume that this doesn't occur in a political backdrop. Um, uh, yeah, let's let's forget that, yeah, Marshall probably does not want to see Marbury get appointed. Um, but he's also conscious of the the bigger picture uh, of of one establishing and defending the court's integrity in what's you know really one of its first big tests, uh, and two asserting the court's uh, power uh, against the other two branches. Yeah, well, you that, know that's what I mean, that's what I mean when I say um, political um, as opposed to you know as opposed to just well hey. Um, we like um, uh, we like the uh, Affordable Care Act, therefore it's constitutional. Mm -hmm. 
But I mean, again, in the case of Marshall, you know, Marshall probably would have wanted Marbury to have his commission, but he doesn't think that Jefferson's going to give it up. And, and and so he's in this kind of tough spot, right? I mean, he was the one who had failed to deliver the uh, the commissions uh, in the first instance. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I, yeah, like I said, he's trying to navigate, how do I maintain the integrity of the court in this in this uh, situation. And he, and he comes up with these sort of, um, oh yeah, uh, Marbury should probably get his commission, but I can't hey, give nothing it to I can do about it. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah. By the way, we're striking down this part of the law. I got this yeah. car. Yeah. And in that sense, it's one of the most unusual court cases where you get all of this legal reasoning for why he should get the commission, but then the, no, you don't get the commission because I'm going to, because I have this power. Well, yeah. I, I think what we should probably do for a minute, Jay, then is, is I think maybe we should pause there, uh, take a break from our sponsors, and then we come back, uh, uh, take a look a little bit, get away from the courts for a minute, and, and talk a little bit about foreign policy, which is not, not something we've gotten to talk about a lot, uh, specifically oh. taking a look at Biden's recent comments uh, at the town hall regarding China and Taiwan, and then China's response this week. So we'll uh, take a brief break, and we'll be right back. So, Jay, earlier this month, uh, on October 8th, as a matter of fact, Ken and I discussed Chinese aggressions uh, towards Taiwan and, and started just an early speculation about thinking about this. This has gotten a lot more, you know, we, we, that was kind of a, that was a lower priority story. This week, though, at, a t- at the CNN town hall, Biden, echoing earlier comments he's already made, stated the United States would come to Taiwan's defense if it was attacked. Asked if the U.S. would do this, he said, quote, yes, we have a commitment to do that, end quote. On Friday, in an apparent response to President Biden, the Chinese government uh, issued a statement arguing that there was, quote, no room, end quote, for compromise over Taiwan. Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Werbin said, quote, when it comes to issues related to China's sovereignty and territorial integrity and other core interests, there is no room for China to compromise or make concessions. And no one should underestimate the strong determination, firm will and strong ability of the Chinese people to defend national sovereignty and territorial integrity, end quote. He would go on to state that Taiwan is an inalienable part of China's territory, i.e. this is totally a national sovereignty and a territorial integrity issue. Now, on this show, I mean, you know, in addition to just the this scuff up between Taiwan and China, you know, we have talked extensively about the ongoing relationship between China and the United States. We started talking about it in terms of trade and that kind of deterioration during the Trump era, um, but that's clearly not going to be just a Trump presidency feature. It, it, it continues to be a continuing feature during the Biden presidency. Now, Jay Kin argued that the United States would ultimately have to back down from China in the case of Taiwan. We're not going to have some go. But these comments from Biden seem to suggest he's at least willing to engage in a war of words for the time being. What do you th- what do you think about this? We haven't had a chance to talk about this one, Jay. Yeah, at first I, I'd say, uh, General Milley, there's a, a call on line one for you. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, it, no, I, I, on, on the one hand, um, I very much appreciate, um, what, uh, Biden said in terms of, of, uh, saying that we have this, this strong commitment. Uh, do we have a treaty commitment? Uh, no, we don't. Uh, we, we, uh, 
uh, made this specifically and intentionally. This, you know, the words they're used is, is strategic ambiguity in the Taiwan Relations Act of, of 1979. And in that act, it, it essentially said, listen, we'll, we'll provide defense and help and assistance uh, to the people of Taiwan. Um, it did not, you know, but it's not a, a, a NATO-type treaty commitment of attack on Taiwan as an attack on the United States. Um, and, I, and I think there's a couple things that are going on. One is, is Biden just talking off script? Uh, I think that's that's a, a big concern. He's just out there doing this stuff because it seems most of his administration uh, walked this back pretty quickly the, the following day. Um, and Although that's he why then, you know, he, he, this would be the second time he's done it, which makes you wonder if there's not a bit of a tension between what his position may be and what his advisors might like it to be. What his administration's position <laughs> yeah. is? Well, yeah, that's um, – which is a little troubling, which is, which is why I made the joke about the phone call to General Milley. Um, I, so look, I, I do, I think that's what our, our policy ought to be. Uh, yeah. Is it what our policy is right now? Um, not really. Uh, and, and there are a couple of reasons for that. On the one hand, I think you can say in 1979 and throughout this time, strategic ambiguity made sense, uh, because the, the conflict seemed sort of remote, Right? Is it possible that uh, the Chinese are going to invade Taiwan? Sure, it's possible. Is it likely? Eh, you know, they they make noises about it and would you know do some saber rattling. But they weren't flying planes into their airspace. Exactly. Yeah. Did they? Did we believe that they really had the capability to pull it off? Um, probably not. Did we have the other forces there to stop them if they did? Probably yes. And I think that calculation is different now. Um, so I I you know if I I would be extremely concerned if I were in Taiwan. So maybe maybe it is uh, time to to change that policy and make it uh, make it more strategic and less ambiguous. Um, right? Less that that ambiguity uh, invite um, uh, more Chinese military action. Um, so so we'll see. I mean the other the, the danger, the flip side of this is when if, if Biden says things like, yes, we'll come to Taiwan's aid. Uh, you get that line in the sand problem. Um, of, well, okay, you know, what if what if someone calls his bluff, um, and and that's that's a, a bigger concern. So, um, yeah, I I, I I'm all for um, a uh, robust defense of uh, of Taiwan, uh, and I think we should make it clear that that is our our policy. Um, that said, I mean, I think Biden misspoke, you know, saying, well, this is, you know, we have an obligation or that, that sort of thing. So that, that's kind of my, my two, two cents on it. Um, well, to add a little bit there, you know, I would say that I think, and, and this is more in my, in my wheelhouse, so, you know, I, I will try not to get too focused, but in, in, in presidencies, in the modern presidency, in the post-Brownlow era, so for listeners, the Brownlow report is what comes during FDR's era, and FDR makes this plea to say that the president doesn't have enough help to get done all the things that Congress has uh, delegated to the executive branch to do, uh, and, and as a result, that there needs to be an expansion in the institutional presidency. And so many scholars will see there being this pre and post uh, Brownlow era uh, uh, presidency. In, in, in the post Brownlow uh, era, where you have this 
large administrative uh, uh, staff, you know, a new president coming in is kind of like you're on the head of a of a steamliner, right? And it's been going in one direction, and and maybe you think it should go in a different direction, but you're on a boat, so you can't instantaneously push all of it on a dime the way you might have wanted to. And, and maybe that's, as a matter of fact, potentially uh, a flaw in the contemporary presidency because the idea of the presidency was to have energy, according to the framers. But be that as it may, you know, you have this kind of push. So I don't think it's necessarily unusual where you have uh, a president who's trying to kind of push the institutional presidency in, in particular ways, especially when you're talking about uh, military matters. Um, uh, so I think you're right. I, I agree with you, Jen, that, and that front that I think there could be some tensions there, but I don't think that's necessarily uncommon. I think that's part of being a president and, you know, still, you know, it's hard to think about, but it's still the but, first year of the Biden presidency. But do you get the sense though, that this was, uh, and, and maybe you're giving Joe Biden more credit than I am. Um, this was an intentional presidential statement to change policy or push policy in a certain way or was he just saying whatever came came to him on you know off the top of his head i you know and, and you know maybe i'm giving him too much because i mean it looks i mean when you when you look at the the video right when you look at a lot of his i mean it, it seems like the latter you get the walk back the next day yeah. saying, well that wasn't really what he meant if it had only been one, then I would agree with you. But the fact that this is the second in his his comments on this makes me wonder if this isn't him kind of using his Neustadian uh, position, his 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 power of uh, his power of the presidency in terms of persuasion to kind of push at his own institution to move it in certain ways, uh, even though it gets walked back. Uh, so that that would be my. Re, you know, if it had just been this one, yeah, it's getting it's getting walked back by Jen Psaki, right? I mean, it's getting walked back by his press. Yes, it's not uh, as yeah. Big. So again, but that that could still be this attempt to kind of push on your your institution in certain ways to say, well, I'm, I am going to talk about these things, even if I'm going to for now maybe roll it back a little bit and, and you into that kind of the ambiguity of the uh, seventy. You would even mention seventy three, right? 70, 79. 79. Um, there, there was a letter, uh, I think there was the initial letter back when in 73, where we um, were ambiguous saying, uh, is there a one China policy? And we sort of said, well, well, sure, but we're not saying which China it is. To some, you know, <laughs> right, China. right. And, um, yeah. You know, back when Kissinger, when the initial uh, trips were made, but this then this was in 79, which was an actual act of Congress having to do with, you know, what do we do with Taiwan? Um, you know, are we because we don't officially recognize them as their own state still because of that that 1973 letter, right? Um, and and uh, if you remember, Donald Trump took criticism because uh, he accepted a call from the the Chinese or the Chinese, um, the Taiwanese. Yeah, I said it Chinese. Well, yeah, uh, but, but that's, that's the, and listen, that's the, that's I, the crazy thing. Right? Who is the Chinese? Um, you know, who who? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, and John Cena, um, uh, yeah, the, the I might say the rightful president of China, um, uh, you know, and, and the you know everyone was aghast that oh my god we can't, we can't do you can't do this you can't take a, a phone call from this guy, um, but uh, yeah so so I think there's there's that I I'm again I'm I'm skeptical of of you know whether that Biden's playing three dimensional chess here, uh, and this wasn't just something that. He just kind of said, because Biden says a lot of stuff. 
Um, he said he'd been to the border a lot too, but nah, not, not really. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's well, you know, uh, and, so I, and I was, I think one of the things that maybe it's harder for the Biden as a presidency is, is that we're coming from the era of the Trump presidency where it felt like literally everything was just off the wall in a sense. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I wonder sometimes don't, don't th- mind him. Th- he's the president. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I wonder if sometimes that kind of relevancy bias, right. We oftentimes want to make predictions based on our most recent experiences. And so it, it could be easy to be using that kind of Trump model. Now, I, but before we get too far on that, I, I, the other thing I kind of wanted to ask you here, and then before we do one, uh, uh, do a last story was to say, what do you think about the fact that, you know, uh, as a, you know, a Republican, one of the items, and I'm a libertarian who who has worked along with Republicans, you know, the idea that it is trade that allows for peace, it is trade that allows for these kinds of uh, measures to go forward. So even as we were talking about this during the Trump presidency, I'd floated many times, as we continue to have trade battles with China, the likelihood that we're going to have other kinds of confrontations with China will go up. And I know that that was not universally always what uh, Ken and others agreed with. So I'm curious about you. Do you see this as being the natural extension of the fact that we've now had four years of ongoing kind of trade disputes with China? And as we continue to make those breakdowns, that we're going to continue to have these kinds of other means of conflict? Or or, or do you, like others, think that I'm crazy on that front? I, I think you're crazy. Um, <laughs> I think this is this is uh, this is a conflict that's been going on since 1950, and uh, mainland China, the Chinese Communist Party, has always claimed that Taiwan is a renegade province and um, that it's going to get it back one day. Um, so I, I I think it's more it has less to do with with trade. Uh, well, let me let me back up. Um, the the Chinese, I think, now believe they're in a stronger position than where they've ever been, and therefore can flex their muscles when it comes to this. Uh, part of this might be uh, the sense that they care less about the U.S. in terms of trade than they might have uh, four years ago, five years ago, twenty years ago, uh, and and now they they say, look, that this this may be our time. Uh, we're ex- essentially establishing hegemony in uh, over the the east, and uh, uh, there's there's nothing you can do to stop us about it. And and look, this has been. Um, the long-term plan from the beginning. Um, you know, there's there's the the story. Of the um, it's it's probably uh, apocryphal um, of the uh, you know Chinese foreign minister. Um, oh gosh, who was the Chinese foreign minister uh, in the seventies? Um, oh, I'm not. I don't know that one, Jay. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, it'll, it'll come to me later. Um, meeting with Henry Kissinger, and they're making you know talk and. Um, and Kissinger says, you know, what what do you believe is the um, the impact of of Napoleon, uh, Napoleon's impact on on uh, world history? And the Chinese foreign minister says, too early to tell. Um, <laughs> again, I, I I don't know that that actually happened. That's it's sort of one. It's one of those sort of political apocryphal stories that are just are told, right? Yeah. But that it sums up that this is the 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 Chinese take the long view. Um. And and I think this is more more that type of, of situation. It's not a reaction to 
uh, well, we've got some some trade dust ups with the U.S., uh, so now we're going to flex our muscles on Taiwan. I think that also, I mean, it, it, that that sort of assumes sort of a um, U.S. centric sort of view that that Trump would would probably go with, right? That look, it's it's all about us and whatever other countries do. Well, it must be because they're reacting or responding to something that the United States has done. But uh, no, this is a, a Chinese thing. It has been for. For, you know, since, uh, like I said, since 1950, really since, uh, what, 1937, uh, the, the Chinese Civil War. Um, uh, but uh, maybe before that, um, um, uh, we do these shows in the morning and, and we always go directions <laughs> that I don't think we're going to go. Um, like, yeah. <laughs> Listen, I'd like to throw you for a loop, Jay, right? This is, you yeah. know, this is, this, is, you know, this is a little different. But, you know, I, I appreciate you pushing back. I, I still think that kind of that real politic... Idea. Can I jump in real quick? To what? Uh, Joe and Lai. Yeah, uh, there you Chinese go. Chinese foreign minister. Sorry about that. Again, it's it's early still, and yeah. Listen, no, I mean, it, it's amazing. We we do so many. You do all this prep for the show. We, you know, you have to to kind of get ready for things, but you can't get ready for every every single. It's like a pop quiz. We play like Jeopardy. Yeah. <laughs> you know who is the former? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, 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 you know, trying to get back, I, I do think that this this real politic view is a negative one. And, and one of the things I didn't like about Trump and it may, and, and it, where he aligned, I think, with many on the left, especially like Sanders, is in this idea of the zero sum game of trade and kind of ignoring some of the the evidence that exists when it comes to what makes for more stable and less stable long-term relationships. I don't see that being as an American-centric view, uh, but rather just a, a data and a social scientific-centric view. Um, but, I, you know, you know, I'm not the one who gets to call those shots. So, man, we've been going long, Jay. So let, let, why don't we, I, I do want to at least get to this one last story, and then we'll just boot everything else into the bonus show. So we're going to have this awesome bonus show. So uh, for listeners, you know, as soon as this one's done, you're going to want to want to get into that. Uh, but why don't we turn to Manchin threatening zero spending uh, uh, here as we come back from a break? Well, Jay, this week there's been a lot of news coming out of the Build Back Better bill. There's a there's a phrase for you. Uh, also known as the $3.5 trillion inflation increase. Wait, did I say that? Was that biased? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, um, there is a lot to unpack here, but Biden has signaled a willingness this week that he could go much lower to get the bill passed. Even some specifics like not having the child uh, uh, credit, uh, go beyond a year, uh, uh, pulling back on you know, free community college tuition. There's a number of different items this week that he signaled on that front. As a matter of fact, even as late as late Friday and early this morning on Saturday, uh, and that continues to come out. But I, I really, I think the day that encapsulates a lot of what's happening in the Democratic side of things was Wednesday, Jay, when we had a showdown between Manchin and Sanders, in which, according to other senators present, so this, this is pretty reliable, Manchin told Sanders he is comfortable with nothing, zero, as a matter of fact, forming that with his fingers. He argues that this will contribute to inflation. In other words, we need to take a pause, kind of see what's going to happen. We've already passed some, some large spending bills, uh, and that's something we've already talked about on the show. The other bit of news that came out about the same time this week was that Manchin was considering leaving the Democratic Party, or at least had a plan in place in case he needed to limit uh, uh, to, to leave the uh, Democratic Party. And According to sources, 
floated that idea among his fellow Democrats, potentially as a levering chip over the upcoming spending bill. Uh, and according to the report, his exit plan would have him calling himself an American independent, although there's really no idea of who he'd caucus with. I mean, his only other option is going to be the Republican Party, the same yeah. way that Sanders, an independent, caucuses with the Democratic Party. So no, I think a lot of times, Jay, we spent we have spent a lot of time in these last four years. I know it's been a big deal for both of us because you know, we've often been with the Republican Party, um, you know, in this post, we've been looking at the the Trump splits. But I think in this post-Trump era, in the Biden era, we're now going to need to start talking about these similar rifts over different items, of course, in the Democratic Party. So is the Democratic Party the party of Sanders? Is it the party of Manchin or does, does Manchin bolt? And, and I think we're going to see that continue to come out. In this bill, so what do you think about you know the mansion being comfortable with zero, uh, the continued uh, efforts by progressives to hold out for a larger spending bill to to go along with the infrastructure bill? I'd say, man, would uh, I, I wish we'd have Republicans who would go on record and say, I want zero spending, <laughs> um, right? I mean, that's um, sort of one of my laments. Is sort of a, a you know, budget hawk uh, type person. And that's that's a complaint that a lot of Republicans have is, uh, listen, we elect these people to control spending or or even cut spending. Uh, and once they get in office, uh, uh, they're they're all too happy to, to go along to get along. Um, so, uh, yeah, is Manchin exaggerating? Maybe. Uh, but um, look, he's he's making the rhetorical point that I don't think we need this period. Um, and uh, so I mean, to, to to my to my mind, I mean, more more power to him. Um, I know so many people on the left think this is this is somehow horrible, or he's uh, he's he's holding the government hostage. He's holding Biden's uh, agenda hostage. Um, but look, he's one. He's uh, will we'll, let's presume he's he's uh, following his conscience. But two, let's presume he, he's a, a craven political actor. He's following his constituents. Um, his his constituents uh, in West Virginia do not want this massive spending bill, uh, and and I think it's pretty reasonable for him to to say so. Um, so yeah, whether whether he switches parties, I mean that you know that doesn't happen often. No, no. I mean, I wanted the last time be Jeff uh, 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 Jim Jeffords. Jim Jeffords, yeah. Um, and and again, that's one of those that I don't know. There's there's also sort of a like this is one of those just sayings in politics is that sooner or later you join the team you're on. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe he does, but, uh, um, or, or maybe he gets, he gets the boot. I mean, he, he might, he might realize that while he could, you know, taking this position, he could cruise to whatever position he wants in, uh, West Virginia, whether it's another term of Senator or governor or, or something else. Um, but he might have trouble in a Democratic primary. Right. Um, so uh, those are things I think that that he probably is is thinking about. Uh, but but that said, I, you know, look, I think it's um, I I'm, I'm not I'm not sure what else to, to say to, to Joe Manchin other than uh, congratulations. <laughs> um, and, and, and although, again, I why I sort of picked on him last week for. Uh, um, shouting how he's going to raise taxes on the rich from the uh, from the deck of his yacht, but um, I, yeah, I, I, I guess uh, 
uh, Democrats are going to have to negotiate with them. That's yeah. That's well, that's well, those are the numbers. Well, that's here's the my worry, and, and I'm curious to get your take on this. Is you know you were talking about, and and, and this is something I've known about you, Jay. You're, you're a deficit hawk, and, and you said that again just a moment ago. So. One of the problems that I see with our spending patterns in the United States is that when Republicans are in office, what they will end up uh, focusing on is tax cuts, which is which is fine in and of which itself, but it never comes along with any kind of corresponding cuts in spending, which leads to inflationary problems, yeah. leads to, to increased debt. And what I'm worried that I see happening here is, is that what we're going to end up with is what Democrats end up doing, which is oftentimes kind of the the reverse of that, which is to say, well, we're going to pay for this through uh, uh, tax increases. But it looks increasingly likely that like, one of the big elements of this bill that's going to have to get pared back so much so that Biden's being asked, well, how are you going to pay for it? You know, given that your centrist senators are not any don't seem to be uniformly on board with raising taxes is, well, well, we'll have to figure it out somehow. Well, I think generally figuring it out somehow means that once again, we increase in this case spending, but we don't, we keep uh, revenue neutral, which is the right. other side of, uh, of de- you know, the deficit. Which means deficit we, we borrow more. Exactly. Yeah. And so it, yeah. no matter which party is in power, we get, you know, either increases in spending or decreases in taxes, but we don't ever get anything that resembles fiscal responsibility uh, because both sides then end up kicking it down the the inflationary uh, uh, road. <laughs> yeah, no, here, here. I mean, I, 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 I can't agree with you more. Um, you know, I look back to, and you're younger than I am, but, um, you know, to me that in, in 96, uh, when Republicans pushed for some modest decreases in spending, um, relating to the rate of growth of, of Medicaid and Medicare, um, they were pilloried. By the the press, as this is this is heartless, this is mean. There were ads showing, uh, um, you know, uh, Newt Gingrich, and I think maybe Paul Ryan, literally pushing Grandma off the cliff. That was Newt Gingrich. Um, that, that was before that Paul Ryan and yeah, I yeah. were well, still Paul, in. I, it, we were still in, in college together. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, that's that's the sort of the and, and the media the media took it hook, line, and sinker that we're slashing benefits. Well, what, what was happening was. We were cutting the rate of growth from something like five percent to something like four percent or three and a half percent, and and it's sort of you you can't even get away with saying we're going to limit the rate of growth without being accused of of slashing and defunding programs and pushing grandma off the cliff. Well, I mean, again, look, uh, look, and, look, and look I think even look among your most conservative Republicans, Jay, right? I I continually have this kind of uh, argument and debate with them, right? You you can't touch things like social security. Um, you know they, they've earned that; they've got to have it. Well, of course, if you're not willing to touch, you're mentioning medic. If you're not willing to talk about those, there's really only three major spending items that yeah. results in most of our federal budget, right? Uh, and, and for the most part, they you know individuals, conservative to liberal are not willing to touch on those. And, yeah. and, and I think you're right. They did get pillared. And I think in part because even, cons- you know, even Republicans, even those kind of cons- don't really want to have to look at what it would, would do. And that, that's an area where I thought that George W. Bush was right. Uh, you know, when he wanted to try to make some reforms 
to Social Security because yeah. that really would have had an impact on budgetary items down the line if we could have had op- opportunities for to kind of have 401k kind of accounts for Social Security. Uh, heck, even 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 the Al Gore version where you can't spend the money that comes in uh, from Social Security uh, taxes so that you at least have some monies there that are accumulating on it uh, would have been a better plan. I, I think George right. Bush has, had the best of, yes, plan. But... It, it becomes more of a saving and, and investment plan as opposed to the Ponzi scheme that it is. Right, because, I mean, just so the listeners know, right, you know, your Social Security taxes, I mean, it looks different when you're, you're doing your taxes, but it goes into the same general budget, <laughs> right? Yeah. There's no, there, there they is pretend, no... They pretend it's a separate budget, but really it isn't. They, exactly. they borrow against it to fund the current budget. Right, which is effectively the same as me saying, "Well, I'm I'm going to borrow out. I'm I'm borrowing out of my checking account or my savings account so that my checking account can uh, not dip into zero as quickly." Yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's exactly right. And, and again, the idea that um, that you have you have paid these paid into these programs or paid into these benefits, and therefore you have a a defined benefit that you're going to get out. It, it it's not it doesn't work like that. You're actually paying for someone else's benefits right now, and someone else in the future will hopefully uh, pay for yours. Uh, and and I think that's a you know again again it's just a fundamental dis- distinction. And, and Republicans haven't been great at making that case. And to some extent, it's it's the press that you got to get through that that you know there no one wants to hear that. But yeah, one of my big arguments, and this is you know back from when I was um, in college, was was concern about uh, entitlements that they're going to keep growing, keep growing, and and eat up more and more of of our spending, our economy. And then you add in the interest that you're paying on those 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 programs as the deficit grows. Uh, that that sooner or later you're you're left with nothing else. And I mean the joke before that we're look our our government is essentially it's it's an insurance company with nuclear weapons. Um, <laughs> you know I mean if you look at what you know where we where we spend our money, um, that's that's huge. And and there's there's not going to be any meaningful reform. And you know the other the other thing that um, Mike and I often get into is when I talk about let's cut this and this out of discretionary spending. And so often Republicans uh, aren't willing to even go that far. And and the argument is, well, what does it matter if we if we cut a little bit from, say, the IRS budget or from uh, some other uh, uh, some other uh, department, you know, foreign aid, uh, whatever, uh, because that's not not the real problem. Um, it's it's the entitlements and all that's true. Uh, but if you don't have the discipline to even make those those small cuts, uh, how are you ever going to make the the big the big choices? And so, but I'm I'm sort of preaching to the choir uh, on on this. Uh, <laughs> but, well, and, and, and I think I, one of the at other, least Joe Manchin's listening. Maybe, yeah, right? and I, I but I think on the Mansion front and other right. I think we forget that in our system, individual members of Congress have have an immense amount of power in the Senate uh, in ordinary times. And this isn't an ordinary time because you have a a very, very divided Senate. And this is what you would expect. Yeah, I, I think sometimes individuals kind of want to expect what you have in more of a parliamentary system. And and we have the exact opposite of that. We don't have a parliamentary system, and therefore parties don't have the kind of sway 
that you might assume that they do, uh, you know, just in that kind of popular conception. But Jay, we have gone long. So it's been a lot of fun doing this. We're going to have, yeah. have a bunch of things for the bonus show. So for listeners, I want to thank you for listening uh, to the politics, guys. I know that for, for Jay and myself, we love doing this. But we don't always get it all in. So we're going to have uh, we're going to be talking about a number of things, including kind of responding to uh, a big listener question about kind of the evolution of the Republican Party. So I want to thank you guys again for listening to the show. Uh, and uh, if you can go ahead and subscribe or rate us on the podcast app of your choice. Uh, of course, you can always share those episodes as well. But one of the big ways is, is that we actually need your financial support. And that means that you're going to get other kinds of cool content and access. And that includes things like the show that's going to be coming to you immediately after the end of the show, which is the bonus show. We have a full length supporters only show. Uh, we also have uh, a discord channel where we get on and, and uh, talk. Uh, I know that Mike and I enjoy doing that. Supporters can gain, gain access to discord, but there's all other kinds of levels of support and things that you can have. So if you want to become a supporter uh, or check out more of the benefits of supporting the Politics Guys, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can just go to politicsguys.com slash support. So you can join myself and Jay again uh, by heading to patreon.com slash politicsguys. I know right now we're also taking a look at a supporters level for transcripts of the show. So again, head to patreon.com slash politicsguys uh, if you're interested in making uh, transcripts of the politics guys a reality. If you've got a question, comment, or correction, or just some random thought you'd like to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Twitter at Politics Guys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. I hope you'll join us next time.